With the election over, we are finally going to explore a topic that we wanted to discuss since the first episode, and that is, should the promise of renewed space exploration be a focus of political campaigns? Is it an issue that you can incorporate into a platform uh, in a successful uh, presidential campaign, specifically? Back in 1960, John Fitzgerald Kennedy promised to make space exploration a main point of his presidency. LBJ and Nixon both carried this goal through the rest of the 1960s, leading mankind to the moon. As the United States enter, enters a period of renewed excitement for manned spaceflight, will and should presidential campaigns promote their views on space exploration, and do the American people want to hear this position? Hello, everyone. Welcome back to Astronomics. This is Hugh here. I'm joined by Eric. How's everybody going? Uh, I we Today we are talking about, as we heard in the intro, um, a little uh, just a comfortable topic of politics following a presidential <laughs> election uh, for its sheer topicality and to perk up our listeners ears uh, you know whatever um, so obviously it's it's topical we're not going to get into anything controversial who would in a political discussion um, but we do want to talk about uh, just the notion occurred to us in this election season season that once upon a time and uh, certainly one of President Kennedy's uh, sort of most most famous uh, notes in history, I guess, is when he uh, promised the American people that uh, that we would go to the moon. Uh, we do these things not because they are easy, but because they are hard. Uh, a beautiful sentiment, definitely. But we're wondering, not much talk in this, or at least I didn't hear it here, and I don't know if you did, Eric, about um, the future of space exploration from the presidential candidates and i wonder if it is uh, an issue that could be campaigned upon uh certainly for the presidency seems like the most obvious office to promote that as a platform issue but um i'd love to hear your thoughts and and why why haven't we heard it and or, or maybe we have maybe you could cite instances in this most recent uh, election season where this did come up or if we haven't why do you think that is no, Hugh, that's a that's a really good question. Um, you know, you think about how much Space Force, when it was announced, dominated headlines, and then for it to lay silent this entire election is really interesting. And it was certainly overshadowed in part by the COVID nineteen pandemic and a myriad of other issues. But isn't that interesting that Space Force was so like dominated all the headlines from the Wall Street right. Journal to the Bloomberg to MSNBC to Saturday Night Live to Netflix, and then we're not talking about it. Um, so, I, you know, I look at it as I'm, I'm surprised it hasn't been a better topic because I think it is, we've talked about this before on the show. It's an awesomely unifying topic. And I think this can't not to be overly political, but I don't think most Americans disagree with me saying that unification is something we need more in this country right now. Um, but, Hugh, I actually have, a, I have an interesting question. Oh, I think it's an interesting question for you because I think this really comes down to every political campaign yeah. really is about getting a vote. The simplest basic unit is about getting a vote. Do you think Americans care enough about space exploration to change their vote based on a candidate's position on space? It's a really tough thing to measure because I, I think it's really tough to measure in a, such a, a polarized um, political landscape in the United States. As we talk about, obviously, there seems to be a, a, a 
core uh, discord and disunity uh, between uh, amongst the people of the United States. Actually, that sounded very official of me. I'm in no position to be making such a remark. But anyway, astronomics is an official. Right. Uh, what do you call podcast? Right. If Thomas Jefferson were alive, he would be third chair. <laughs> so, you know, uh, the swivel chair. Yeah. Um, I, so is the, the, let me let me let me start here. Do I think it's enough for people to change their position? The voices you hear are such are really ideologues, frankly, on either side of the spectrum. So it's hard to imagine that sort of um, a peripheral what. To even describe as a peripheral issue, but uh, but uh, an issue that is doesn't really add weight to one of one platform or the other. Particularly, it's hard to imagine that I, uh, hardlined ideological voters will change their position to a to a, uh, in order to a, a, to pursue an objective in this third issue, which is space exploration. Yeah. But honestly, the, there is this silence of American moderates. It seems where I for me, who I you know I'm gonna say that I'm relatively politically moderate as every like everyone who ever has gone on record virtually has ever said, you know. Uh, I, I, that issue would totally excite me completely a lot. And um and uh, you know, any administration that that funds NASA, um and uh, it's something I'm interested in. Uh, as someone who I uh I, I admire greatly, I thought, um from a talked about NASA and the government's involvement in space exploration and research, and I put it in what I felt was a, a way that resonated with me. And he said that it's basically that NASA and the government's investment in space exploration is putting the resources in the hands of the smartest people in the world to do work that benefits humanity. And I think that that was a very apt description. And that's a position I think I would certainly root for, and it would give me, um, it would it would weigh on my decision to vote. I don't know about the American people in general that are, especially this last election season we're coming off of, it's just really hard to get a sense that that would, would move them. But I will say, if you were to compare it to like an issue like, and talk about unifying issues, everyone seems to be get pretty jazzed up when presidents make prom or candidates make promises about infrastructure. So you gotta, you gotta think that this, that there's, to me, there's a similarity there where you're, you're promising it, it's a unifying issue. I think that people could get jazzed up about, I think could have some weight for moderates, but you wouldn't, that might be why we haven't heard. Maybe the reason we didn't hear about it in the recent presidential election is because all we heard were kind of, extreme positions most of the news media to me appealed to extreme positions more than moderate positions but maybe it's a secret wish in the hearts of the american public genie mac why do i have to sound like this i've gone uh, sorry <laughs> no no i want so you, you brought up a good point which is like the ideologues so in economics we have this one a nobel prize um something called median voter theory um it's that elections are decided by statistically the four percent in the middle mm. um I agree with you. I don't think if you, I don't think you're going to get somebody from the far left to vote on the other side of the aisle based on space mm. positions of a candidate on the other side of the aisle. I don't think you're going to get people on the far right to flip the other side of the aisle based on based on space travel. Not to sound offensive, but those votes simply don't matter because they will not change position. It's the person in the middle whose vote can sway in the moderate left or right. 
that really decides elections. It's very parallel to our the swing state system, really, of our electoral college, is that you think they're guaranteed states and they're guaranteed votes, and then you really have to appeal for the, the consequential votes, which are not undecided necessarily, but yeah. you have they're open to they're available to be won and persuaded. I'm it, sorry to interrupt. No, but that's exactly what it is here. Um, why is Ohio so important? It doesn't have that many electoral college votes. But the reason Ohio is important is it's an indicator right. for the rest of the country. It's not guaranteed. And it's not guaranteed. Ohio, from an economic standpoint, a political standpoint, is very similar to the, to the uh, rest of the United States, where in the South it tends to lean Republican, in the North it tends to lean Democrat, in the middle it tends to be you know moderate. Um, because of that, you actually see Ohio being the indicator with its small amount of electoral college votes, it does seem to indicate what's going to happen in the rest of the country. It's a median state. It's a predictor state. As an economist, I, we look at these indicators to see if you're going to go left or right. Where Where's everybody hitting? Um, but this idea of median voter theory is where I think the value of space could come from, where you don't, you, you know, a gentleman who, say, doesn't prescribe to either a ideological extreme. I know, Hugh, I share with you that I am a moderate. We are on record. Um, we are on record. We wouldn't be on record. <laughs> um, there's many things I like about both parties, many things I dislike about both parties. And many things Certainly. I, I think that's the only sane position, in my opinion. Yeah, I say my absolutism for Sunday morning. Um, so <laughs> when we look at um, space, is that going to be enough to sway, even if it's fractions of a point, which we can see can change elections? Um, is it enough to sway somebody one way or the other? I personally think maybe space travel itself isn't, and space exploration itself isn't, but the underlying idea of unification behind this mm -hmm. is. I mean, you look at how much the 60s were politically were, were, uh, a politically uh, tumultuous time for America, that, you know, we did rally behind Apollo. Like, mm. we've talked about Apollo 13 here multiple times. Like, that was awesome. Like, that was just, like, unifying. Like, you know, we may disagree, but we know the guys at NASA... Our smartest, our brightest that we're giving all this right. money to, they're getting us there. Like, they figured it out. They got those. We, we spent an inordinate amount of money. We spent an inordinate amount of resources. But our best and brightest, we're able to get our guys home. Right. And that's unifying. I think we can all get behind the, like, yeah, America um, aspect of it. But, Hugh, you brought up something interesting. Um, you know, the idea that ex expanding NASA is kind of giving resources to the best and brightest. In the early 1900s, it was actually a movement to elect like scientists, businessmen, and right. engineers to high office, and uh, based and to see if they'd run the country better. And I'm going to be really, really biased right now because of my profession. There are some historians. I'm not saying it is the common held historical belief that Woodrow Wilson was the pinnacle of that, because Woodrow Wilson was an academic economist. He was not really. A politician by his he was a politician by the standpoint that he was obviously um, he held public office, but it's yeah. it, like many presidents. He didn't, you're saying suggesting he didn't necessarily carry the reputation yeah. of being a, uh, a devoted political operator. Exactly, he was a moderate economist from Princeton, which at the time and still is Princeton is one of the top econ schools in the world. It's top three, top five, depending on you ask. Um, and what my favorite thing about Woodrow Wilson was before he left office was like. Uh, you know, he proposed League of Nations. Um, if you actually read his his 13 points and stuff like that, he actually talks about, like, hey, let's not do reparations to Germany because it's going to cause hyperinflation and you make it a dictator. <laughs> he talked about, like, yeah, the League of Nations works well, but you need to have more of, like, everybody allowed in. Don't just have the Western world. But get everybody in here because then you can, if you have consensus, you can then use consensus. 
This is crazy about Woodrow Wilson. He talks about this consensus, consensus building and being able to set agendas um, about 80 years before Michael Greenspan writes about agenda theory, which is like this really well-known idea that you can set policy based on what you allow in agendas. Like, he was very, he predicted a lot of stuff. He kind of called what happened in the Weimar Republic um, that led to Hitler uh, Hitler's ability to rise to power. He was like, dude, we should go into Germany. We should go into France. We should rebuild everything because good, stable economies tend not to produce dictators. And guess what happened? We completely decimated the German economy. So they were paying war reparations that weren't worth anything to France. So France wasn't able, didn't even benefit from it. And look what happened. You end up with Adolf Hitler. Um, as opposed to after World War II, the Marshall Plan rebuilt Europe. And even, the Marshall Plan even offered resources to the Warsaw Pact. And... Well, yeah, <laughs> of course it would. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. I'm here, yeah. 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 I'm sure a bit of an, uh, an inducement, an enticing factor, maybe there. Um, and look what happened. I mean, you, yeah, we had a Cold War, but this is a very fortunate it's a Cold War that didn't escalate to the scale of World War II. Yeah, that Cold War, that it's funny, that competition there, the, presti- the competition for prestige, for achievement, for... Um, for dominance in the eyes of the world, maybe, and this might be, this is obviously an outsider's, uh, a commoner's perspective on it, but it's like, that maybe that, thank thank God it didn't uh, escalate into direct military conflict between the two superpowers and for a prolonged period of time, but, uh, but like, it may be that, that competition did seem to drive, like, obviously, um, uh, the the first satellite being put in orbit and the first man on the moon it was driven they, by competition. They rode ballistic missiles into space. <laughs> uh, <laughs> right. So, um, you know, one of the arguments, and we actually talked about this in one of our satellite episodes, was uh, about um, investment. Well, how does investment work? And you know, I often hate when people talk about, oh, why invest in NASA? That money's not spent on Earth. Like, no, no, everything that NASA spends on it, it, go, it helps the Earth. We're not, they're not, we're not vending machines in space. Like. All right, it, it, it induces more advanced manufacturing. So we talk about like investment infrastructure you mentioned earlier, Hugh. NASA is is very good at that, and I think some people I don't some people have this misconception that NASA is like spending money in space. No, we're spending all the money on Earth, and then we're sending it into space. Right. I mean, how many people are going to disagree with GPS and disagree with? You know, um, and that and all the great stuff that NASA Those distributed. Blankets that are like oh, super lightweight, sa- you, saving you lives. Saving lives. <laughs> yes. You got, you got to justify always to justify NASA with GPS and those blankets. <laughs> Those sweet, sweet pens. Those are <laughs> yeah, I always hate that na- that rumor that NASA is like, oh, the Rus- uh People crap on NASA because they're like, well, the Russians use pencil. They never use pencil. If you have gra- graphene and graphite. Uh, particles floating around that's a conductor it's a very high resistant conductor um, you would have fried the entire system they never use pen, uh, pencils see I never I never heard that but that's it's just like, then I don't want to go back too far into our risk dis- discussion but think about all the things you have to consider in that situation isn't it isn't it wild what? just one example yeah you can't life. sleep through that job like you said last episode right oh yeah exactly <laughs> yeah, you know I mean I, I want to definitely trust my, the person who has his you know, who has control of the airlock or whatever, you know. So, um, you know, so this kind of brings us to another question. And, uh, you know, I really want to, uh, you know, you, you're definitely, I'd say, a little more of the national political junket than me. Is, uh, <laughs> oh, that's, that's that raising expectations. No, I am raising expectations. <laughs> to a, to a vaunted position on high, and I'm scared of heights. <laughs> um, uh, do you think candidates will be mocked for wanting to increase spending towards NASA? Like, 
should it, is it going to be like, fix problems here first? Do you think that's going to be the mentality of a candidate came out was like, I'm going to quadruple NASA's budget, which would not even be a, wouldn't even, would barely move the needle on the federal budget. Yeah, that's a, that's a really uh, interesting question. It's, it's hard to predict how, what, like, what position will be used as, as a, um, as a detractor or, a, you know, to, a, 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 as a weapon against other, sometimes you find like, I don't, you know, I'm not going to speak on which issues, but I, I definitely find there are issues that are largely immaterial, but are, are the, that the parties do a great political job of making them sound very consequential and like gr a great criticism against their opposition. Um, Although I yeah I, you know what I won't well, whereas I won't say that people will change their vote necessarily or the hardliners necessarily won't change their vote um, based on on NASA's budget I don't think I think it would be I could be wrong and I've made a lot of faulty political uh, predictions in the past I think it would be fruitless for uh, a, an opposition a party to try and to try and criticize their opposition with the, with an increased NASA budget. I think by and large people respect NASA. They're 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 proud of the the achievement that came. They really get a great sense of national pride of like landing on the moon and that the legacy of that. Um, so I think I think that NASA could have its budget increased without uh, without much political consequence for the for the, the administration and the the um, the dominant party that pushes it forward. However, I would note that I believe it was. I think it was in 2010. Yeah, so I ultimately, ultimately, I do think it would be, um, I, and I'm, I'm hoping that it would be a uh, a fruitless um, ploy or, or, or tactic to to try and uh, use against a candidate promoting the uh, increased budget of NASA or promoting something dramatic like um, the ongoing. I you know the the ongoing aspiration of NASA to land a man on Mars yeah. you know I, I don't think especially once because we've seen the success of the moon and I, Americans are so proud of that but I don't I, I think that that's un, I think that that's for now I hope outside of the realm of controversy and it's also a, a government institution that hasn't really been um, diluted with with controversy or scandal no. ever thank no. thank goodness um, because met many other you know, there's a there's a lot of skepticism around our governmental institutions and many of our other institutions. So NASA has largely escaped that that sort of controversy. So people, tr I think the American people trust a taxpayer investment in NASA. Yeah, I mean, exactly. It's all a lot of times when it comes to Na NASA is uh, just a very trusted agency. So like NASA and the military, um, both always ranked very, very high in public trust, I mean, in the plus 90%, which is a cool facet about America. I mean, this is off topic to the show, is that, like, we have a lot of faith in our military. Like, we have yeah. a lot of faith in our military, which is something that large countries, historically large empires, large whatever you want to call, you know, using in, uh, comparisons for antiquity, don't have, which is the right. fact that your military is a, is not to quote the Navy's, uh, yeah, we'll give the Navy a free sponsorship, but a global force okay. for good. I mean, like you think of it, like you, you see other parts of the world get devastated by natural disasters, and you, know, you get an aircraft carrier to pull up. You get the most, the most expensive, the most destructive, you know, weapon of war, right. which is a U.S. 
Nimitz class uh, aircraft carrier. And what is it doing? Providing aid, desalinating water, preventing cholera outbreaks, dysentery outbreaks after natural disasters. That's that's primarily what our navy is used for. <laughs> our navy has a two theater um, mandate, meaning that it has to be able to fight two full scale wars in two theaters. There's only three theaters of the world by their definition, so two theaters. Um, but what are we using these massive, massive machines and their fleets for? Humanitarian aid. And you didn't get that with the Roman Empire. You didn't get that with any empire throughout history. The British Empire, you didn't get that. You did not get, like, hey, small country that is meaningless to America. And I'm not trying to be, I'm not disenfranchising, I'm not trying to talk down, but a small country that provides, no, can't hurt America, can't help America, but what shows up? Hey, but we're going to help you. And I really think that's an awesome part about how you know the U.S. military and NASA is very closely related to the U.S. military and how NASA operates. It's not. It's really not about um, you know projecting power. It's not just about projecting power. It's also there is a good use for it. Yeah, I definitely um, like obviously goodwill does does project power in a in a productive way. So that's a, a good th- a good thing definitely, and that's. And that's what NASA does too. NASA, it shows the world um, like it's an it's an achievement that sh- that sh- that that shows the world um, the good the, the good things that our that our country can achieve can achieve. You know that, that so I think it, it inspires people here and abroad. A while ago, <laughs> I meant to bring this up. You were talking about how uh, Ohio was so crucial to our political system for for presidential elections because it's 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 in. Um, it's not guaranteed for either party. Coincidentally, am I correct in understanding that a disproportionate number of astronauts are from Ohio? Oh, I do from Ohio. Yeah, yes, yeah. Enough, yeah. So obviously, it, uh, it 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 keeps it keeps coming out. And for the the naysayers that uh, that are opposed to, to uh, governmental funding of of NASA, I wonder if they share this uh, in opposition of any uh, of any federal grants that might be. Uh, Put forth to uh, Antarctic research to make, to make sure that that we loop that in there. I would vote against a candidate if they try and take uh, Antarctica away from me. Yeah, I think I think yeah. Well, it's funny that, that we were bringing that up for humor, but like, is it is it really desirable for a, a government policy to contract its spending and scientific research? Oh no, is that an advisable? political position from an economic standpoint it certainly isn't what space means to our politics um question we we haven't like so we haven't talked a lot about um about about the the kennedy um legacy and i shouldn't just say that the the kennedy legacy because as we mentioned before it actually happened during the uh nixon administration and obviously lbj was uh the the interim president between those two administrations so uh, there, there there was a lot of the groundwork was was um laid there as well but i, I did want to i wish i was more um versed on 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 this race but in in lead, the lead up to us doing this recording i texted you that scott kelly had won his race yeah, in yeah, Arizona. Yeah. so obviously i mean that's that's evidence to me that the american people do care because this is a guy who Obviously, he has characteristics. They're not he. He's in the sense that's popular to be anti-establishment. I don't know if there's a better way to be anti-establishment <laughs> than to be an astronaut. Like, obviously, it obviously takes extreme courage, extreme competency, and um, 
and and uh, what what is and uh, and an uh, understanding of having worked in some American state institution oh, yeah. for for a significant portion of time. So that I mean, to me, that definitely bodes in the favor of evidence that um, that the the American people uh, could find it uh, cer- uh, agreeable to. I mean, to find uh, an astronaut space as a, as a good issue for them. Yeah, I mean, you look at, <laughs> he's an astronaut. Like, how do you even, like, you can't critique his intelligence. You can't critique his, uh, what do you call it, his, his courage. courage. You can't critique, like, what do you, what do you challenge? Imagine having to run against an astronaut, especially, like, the most famous astronaut currently right. alive. Like, right, wouldn't you have to be, like, that'd be a little frustrating. It would, it would be a challenge for, I think it would be a challenge for virtually any candidate yeah. really because there is like sort of that it's like this person this it's the one position it's like the most superhero type position yeah, right and then, and then it's like oh this person it's a superhero type position that makes you like quality like people think you're qualified for anything right like if i was like hey you can't meet with your doctor today but we have scott kelly here um i, I hear think him I, out yeah <laughs> <laughs> I, I would be like all right, yeah, I think, like, yeah, you would put I'm like, oh, yeah, I'll take you, I'll take your word on that. I mean, you're an astronaut. Right. <laughs> no, I, I'm going to do kind of a weird throwback metaphor for this, but after John Quincy Adams was, um, uh, what do you call after he lost the presidency to Andrew Jackson, uh, he became a U.S. rep. Mm-hmm. So he was the Secretary of State. Yep. He was, and then he Great was. Great Secretary pre- of State. Yeah, arguably the best Secretary of State we ever had, the Monroe Doctrine he wrote. Mm-hmm. Um, then you had... Um, he was president, right? And then he became, but then he went to House of Rep. Yep, and he was a lawyer subsequently. He was, yeah, he, he was. He represented clients subsequent to the holding of presidency. Yeah, um, but think of like, and so he didn't have to follow the gag rule in the House. I would, for some of our listeners who don't know, the gag rule is that you couldn't speak about slavery in the House in in Congress. There was some institutionalization to it, but it wasn't widespread enough to even qualify as a statute. Um, but he was able to talk about it because he was the former president of the United States. So you really couldn't say anything about him because he was so overly qualified. And he, I mean, he was, I would say, I would say his father was the first abolitionist. And so John Adams, I mean, John Adams wrote the Massachusetts Constitution, which outlawed slavery. So I think the argument he's the first abolitionist in the United States. He definitely took, it's got to be, the, that's got to make him, and that pioneering, um, the, the the most one of the most concrete, like tangible actors in in, in, Apple, in the abolitionist movement. I mean, there's some people who say the um, first the first Western Constitution outlaw slavery was the Massachusetts Constitution. I think there's probably I, I think depending on what you define as Constitution, that become pretty problematic. So I don't know if I would agree with that, but I would say for you know just for the point of this discussion, obviously this is a history podcast. I mean, yeah, so, you know, you look at, like, John Adams, and then his son subsequently was just as, I mean, he used to entice slave states to get arguments with them, because he was, a lot of people believe that John Quincy Adams had the highest IQ of any president, and I don't think many people would disagree with it. I mean, he was just absolutely brilliant. If anything, he was probably too smart to be president, which I, um, but yeah, I mean, it, it's similar to where, like, wow, you're so overqualified for this. I think a lot of people would be like, if you're an astronaut, you're overqualified for anything. And I think that speaks a lot about the unification and the common acceptance that if you're an astronaut, um, almost to critique somebody who's an astronaut on political grounds is almost, uh, what do you call it? It's almost sacri- sacrilege. It's that uh, how, can, how, can how can you assault somebody on their competency 
when we uh, when they are the absolute top of what needs to be to go to space. Right. Yeah. And it's, it's unquestionable because it's so, that's one of the things we talk about the success, success of people like Johnson, like you had mentioned earlier. It's because the unique conditions of space, the extremes that you're exposed to, all that matters is merit in that circumstance right. because you're, you're, there's no, it's just totally not, it can't be status based at the end of the day. Now, am I, am, <laughs> I, am I to suggest that no one who's ever been involved either with NASA or with any of these um, space and industrial apparatus of private companies and government uh, agencies like NASA working together? Am I to suggest that there's no incidence of a status based position or favorable condition for that for an individual? No, but when push comes to shove and there's a crisis or, or you're mitigating against an extreme hazard in human life, it's, it's going to be experts that are, are going to rule, rule the day. Yeah, and it, it, absolutely. I think as much as politics wants to work us around that, Americans respect expertise. Not a, we respect experts. Um, talking about Scott Calicon's readings to, uh, we've had kind of a little more serious than we're used to on this show discussion, but I think it's important to frame this. So maybe this is a little less serious. Um, do you think we're ever going to see a space party? Do you think like Scott Kelly runs for uh, president and he's like, do you know what? Not Republican, not Democrat, space party. Uh, I think it's going to take the, the initial, it's going to take an initial, uh, uh, the, the first step. I, it's gonna, I think it's going to naturally follow a, um, per, uh, a permanent or perennial population taking up residence in space in some form, whether it be a space station, um, in, in an interstellar body, the moon, um, or, or what have you. Uh, it, it's going to require that. But I think it's an inevitability that you are going to have um, a, a different, different, a totally different perspective and different, uh, different needs, which the, the, the parties which are grounded, headquartered, and located on Earth, have they just won't be able to have this exact same to serve completely serve the the, the residents of space as, as crazy as that is to sounds. I don't think that the space party is going to be large at first, or a party that's largely platformed around um, around issues of life in outer space is going to be large because the population is going to be small at first, but it, it will exist. Like you have these. Fringe third parties throughout the throughout the country they they exist they're not massively consequential or, or popular but you know they exist and I think I think you're definitely going to see that in, in, in outer space in, in, in some time. So Hugh, you know we talked you, you mentioned about like the full you're not going to see um, real space party formed until we have full time residency in space. I agree with that because. Yeah, I don't. I, I don't think. I think you leave your politics on Earth when you go into space. But if you're in space all the time, politics are going to follow you. Do you think people in space should be allowed? Americans living in space full time, say they're living on the moon, say they're living in Mars or low Earth orbit or what have you, should they be allowed to vote? Should they have a say in domestic politics? Um. Yeah, I, I think that. Um. You know, if if they're being represented, if if they, if they're if they're taxed by, presumably they're gonna be taxed by the government that is, uh, and and live under the laws of uh, of the American government, and they and and yet residing in space. Yeah, I I tend to think, and this obviously reveals 
some other positions that I'm not going to delve into too much. But yeah, those those people should be able to to vote in our elections. Now, I'm not the most knowledgeable person about how uh, elections are handled in in in, in territories uh, under U.S. jurisdiction and how how the electoral process works there. Um, but as a general principle, I'm comfortable to say if you're being represented by that government, if that government can impose taxes and laws upon you, then yeah, then you should be able to vote and who those representatives are. So one of the cool things is how people vote from space. Um, there's actually a case in the 90s where an astronaut w uh, wanted to vote in his local election and basically was like, I have every right to vote. So um, the, the county representing where this gentleman was originally from created a digital ballot that was super hyper encrypted and this is now how everybody, all the astronauts vote. Um, and uh, it's just a encrypted ballot. They log in and then they vote. And that ballot gets transposed on Earth under this super highly encrypted way and recorded. Um, but they have to list their address because it's an absentee ballot. And they have to list it as LEO, low Earth orbit. That's awesome. That is maybe the coolest thing ever. Um, I think this is where I see, this is where NASA gives the rest of the country gifts like this. And I call them gifts because it's just the positive externalities of their right. existence. Imagine, you know, we just had an election that involved recounting. You have states like Pennsylvania that aren't allowed to open uh, ballots until after the election, until 8, 8 p.m. The end of an eligible voting period on election right. day. And then you have millions of ballots that take forever. But imagine if everybody voted through a digital process like this in these hyper-encrypted systems. Like, again, you know, you know what's really hard to break an encryption of? Uh, NASA's encryption. Is because if you're not encrypted, you could just deorbit the space station. You could just cause absolute tomfoolery in space. So imagine 8 p.m. election day rolls around. Snap your fingers because it's digital. Every single vote's counted immediately in a hyper encrypted, hyper primary keyed process. That would be a, that would be a, that would be something NASA gave us. Whatever think NASA would be giving us ultra secure, instant results. For an election, but you never know what NASA is going to give you because they're all, always they're always trying to innovate. But outside of that, I, outside of you know talking about their election process, say we have people living on a moon colony, would you support space senators? As in, you know, say we, we have hundred senators now, and now we have hundred and two because they represent everybody who's living on the moon. And would their positions on things be taken serious with the term space senator? So no, you couldn't. You know, I mean, that's funny. You couldn't. You you know, at the end, of, their legal designation is going to have to be equivalent to any other U.S. senator if it's to serve in the U.S. Senate. I mean, to me, like for us to talk about, like you know, for instance, there's the movements in, for Puerto Rico statehood and 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 other Guam, uh, American Guam, Samoa, and, U.S. Virgin Islands. Yes, thank yeah. you. And and they, so to preempt uh, those more obvious entities. Uh, or, or you know potentially more obvious entities from uh, uh, from state discussions with statehood with this uh, abstract uh, uh, space territory statehood is it, it's it's just where it's it's just because we're 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 doing that we're talking about because this show the show's forward thinking but from the the position we are now it's it's highly speculative and yeah. uh, let's let's just. Let, let's just let's just try and address that individually. Let's say the senator senator's in space. Um, yeah, I think I think that the, I don't until there's a significant um, population there. 
I don't necessarily think they're going to have much. It'll take a long time for uh, uh, a population space to have political weight. But I think that they will eventually. They, they have every they have every right to gain recognition. I believe so. Yeah, I don't think you could call them space senators. You know what I mean? That's like, but we have so we have U.S. senators and then we have Maine U.S. senators. Or we have U.S. senators and we have Wyoming U.S. senators. We have U.S. senators and we have outer space U.S. senators. Like I don't necessarily think that's true. And I also wonder, you know what I mean? It, will it take its first iteration of? I, I happen to think there will be. Um, it, I don't think that there's going to be like an international community living solely under international law. Like I, there, there may be as yeah. well, but I think that it, the countries are going to have territories and jurisdictions um, uh, that are attached to their own earth jurisdictions, oh, not but, international necessarily. Yeah, I think just that's historically what's happened. Like, I mean, Canada was under the crown till 1921. I mean, it, it is, it, and then I think they didn't even, they're still part of the Commonwealth. Yeah, the Commonwealth right, yeah. system of, of the United Kingdom or the Commonwealth a system of I believe it's the Commonwealth system of the United Kingdom. Yeah. That's the way it's described. I, I don't know a lot about uh, it. But. Well, I always joke, you know what the most uh, east, the most uh, western um, part of uh, Europe, is, of the EU is? Uh, hold on, give me a minute here. It's one of those crazy, like, great historical facts. Is it Iceland? Uh, no, but Iceland's number two. Uh, it's French Ghana. Uh, so, French Ghana is, the, is considered like a state. Similar to Hawaii is to us, right? And it's in south. It's in uh, the northeast of South America, and that and that's very topical to our discussion. That's where the European Space Agency launches its satellites. Oh, that's cool. So the largest park, the largest park in the EU, is on the South American continent. What? <laughs> yeah, the largest uh, forest, the largest uh, preserved forest in what? the European Union is not on the European continent. That's very surprising. Yeah, I, I, yeah. Geography is just awesome. Like the closest, do you know, the closest state to Africa is Maine. Oh, the closest U, U.S. Yeah, state, state to Africa. I was like, okay, okay. yeah, I, I, okay. I could like see that one more just because it's so it's easternmost. And, yeah, it's yeah. so eastern, and then obviously the curvature right. of the Earth because right. the Earth is not flat. Um, That's also talking about geography. We talk. We list off a bunch. Is of, that a political position? It unfortunately, I think it's become a political position. Holy. My goodness! I don't want to. I almost, I almost, cur- I almost like, I almost cursed or something there. But uh, you know, my goodness. I don't think our listenership is too concerned with that po- that political position. I did speak with. Can I tell my flatter story oh, go, real quick? Yeah. I spoke with, and I, you know, I'm. This is not disparaging to anyone. This guy. I spoke to this guy. He was a parking attendant. He was a flat earther. How did I learn? A, how did I have? I didn't. He didn't even. He didn't park my car. I was. I was walking by him and frankly distracting him from his work. Him and his buddy were kind of goofing around doing their work. Then he's probably like in his early twenties, and um, him and his buddy are like I overhear them talking about flat earth. So I like, I like, I like, I I, I, I bark something out. You chirped like, I, chir- I chirp a little bit about the, like the flat earth thing to him, and uh, you know he's a friendly enough guy and whatever engages me. And I'm like, hey man, I'm not really, I'm not really judging you, but. What, how long, how, when did you start believing the earth was flat and, and what evidence do you have that it is? And his response, the most shocking one to me was, his response was, uh, 
six months, essentially it was six months ago, I believe the earth was round, but that's all changed. And I was like, oh my God, imagine, that seems like an incredibly short amount of time to, 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 radically, to, to change. radically change your perspective on life in the world. I respect somebody that open to new ideas. He's, he's, he's open. He's a, maybe the word for that might be impressionable. And then his evidence that he offered was, uh, I'm not going to say it, at this particular somewhat low, uh, at this at this speech, there's a, he, and I, I I know which one he was he was talking about. He said that there was a visible um, lighthouse from the shoreline, and his metric was that uh, if if the if the Earth's which, as far as I understand it, your 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 vantage point from the shoreline usually is about four or five miles. Something. But this is the way I'm looking at it, and I'm not. I don't have. I neither. I'm criticizing. Or I'm essentially pointing out that this that this person who was a flat earther had no substantive, um, you, you know, substantive scientific basis to suggest the Earth was flat by by mentioning that this lighthouse. He was suggesting that this lighthouse at at the vantage point from the shore, uh, this lighthouse, which was uh, should have been uh, non visible, but was visible to him. And uh, and first off, I think when your vantage point from the shore is only four or five miles, as I understand it, and you know I could be wrong, a listener might be able to say that, but it ain't a hundred miles. And uh, like at that, that at that small increment compared to the 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 great curvature, like the right. twenty five thousand miles right. of curve, like it, it, that is that that is dispositive of. Nothing. <laughs> you yeah, know, you, just, you're not applying any rationale. But, but I didn't go in that direction with them, and I, I, hold, I really, I, I don't harbor ill will to the guy. But I, I, this is what I just quickly suggest, and this is obviously, obviously, I had no evidentiary basis. But he's suggesting that if the Earth were curved, this lighthouse should not have been visible to him at its distance from the shoreline. Yet, so the Earth must be flat because it is visible. And uh, I'm thinking this guy didn't actually do any calculations. Yeah. I'm reading this guy. Read, I'm just reading the person. I'm saying, this guy didn't do any calculations. So I, I just suggest a quick alternative to debunk. I was like, well, is it possible that could be a condition of light refraction off the water? Totally pulling out of yeah. out of the air for me, but just something to him. But to, he loses credibility immediately. When he looks me in the eyes and he says... I factored that in. No, <laughs> I'm, looking, no, I'm, looking, I'm looking through his soul, and I know, like, I'm not a lie detector test, but looking through this dude's soul, and I'm like, I was just thinking about it. So, and I, I said to him, I went, okay, and I was like, have a nice night, whatever. But I'm looking at this dude's soul and saying, absolutely, in my mind, I'm saying, you absolutely did not factor that in. You know what I mean? And the fact that he, that's the thing, man, he was willing to protect his outrageous position, he was willing to knowingly lie protect a position that he had now obviously i don't have proof that he was lying i'm I'm willing to i'm willing to go out there and say that he didn't account for light refraction to prove his point or whatever because you know i I just pulled out of the air myself so like he was willing to commit to it to such an extent that uh that that it it was just ridiculous so yeah i mean it's funny the light that exact uh, very similar methodology to what, how the ancient Egyptians proved that the earth was round. They measured at noon the reflection of an obelisk uh, in Cairo and then mm-hmm. the gentleman paid somebody to walk, I think it was like seven miles away to another one and the difference in shadowing. They, he predicted the uh, curvature of the earth within a couple hundred miles. 
Um, what's actually very funny is there was never a time that we didn't believe the Earth is round. Never a time right. of that I, was this, It's a popular misconception. Yeah. Columbus, the sailors thought they were going to sail off the edge So of the do you know why they didn't give Columbus? And this isn't like specul- speculation. These are first account records that nobody gave, nobody wanted to pay, uh, give Columbus money. Is because they thought he underestimated the distance. Oh, yeah. Yeah, they totally thought he would sense. never make that. That totally makes sense. They um, still thought it was hazardous, but not for the reason. Yeah. Like, but what's funny is that um, the uh, the Catholic Church did teach the Earth was round, and uh, a lot the most educated people in society at the time were usually priests. They were usually the people who could write, could read, um, and that was a belief held by, by the Catholic Church. So that was, the priests never disputed that, and that was something that was just known. I mean... There was never a time where the the were uh, the it was ever taught or held um, that the world was uh, round uh, the world wasn't round and the world wasn't spherical. Um, but yeah, even there's like sometimes you see like you know when they refer to the Dark Ages, they say, well, you know, it was a, the religious didn't believe it was they believed it was flat. Uh, no, it wasn't. Now, if you want to talk about heliocentric orbit, you want to talk about heavenly uh, heavenly uh, spheres, which is you know Jonas Kepler. I mean, Jonas Kepler is a very religious man, so the idea that Jonas Kepler was um, this is awful to say, but there was like a meme that Jonas Kepler was like, oh, you know, attacked by the religious. Uh, no, Jonas Kepler is actually buried buried in a cathedral um, after, um, let's say, more Philistine view people um, were like wanted to like exhume his body and attack. Some of the people who like believed in witches wanted to attack him, um, so they actually exhumed his body and he's buried even to this day in a cathedral. So the idea that it was ever the, in, for the longest time, whether we like it or not. Religious institutions, religious institutions, were the largest national bodies in the world during for millennia and a half. They were since the fall of the whole Roman Empire to the rise of the British Empire. It was religious institutions were your largest, uh, your largest institutions, national institutions in the Western world. Just, they just were. I mean, it's fa- that's a factual statement. Um, was well, never held. It's a necessary, like it's a necessary basis where our political system is based on the legitimacy of a mandate from the masses. For when monarchies obviously didn't, by definition, were not, not a mandate of the masses. Not, not, did not derive their legitimacy from a mandate of the masses. So they needed a substitute legitimate uh, basis of legitimacy, yeah. which was a mandate from God. And so it, that's, that's that's essentially, the. it seems to me, uh, my opinion of the basis of uh, a lot of European history. Exactly. the And it was symbiotic. Uh, it was, you had... A, uh, up until the um, establishment of the Cardinal of Colleges in 1059, um, the Pope, even after that, you know, the Pope was almost approved by certain whatever political, major political right. entity existed at the time. There so was, there was a lot of uh, there was a lot of people that power brokers and people who had a lot of interest in who became Pope. Exactly. For Whole, I mean, think of the Holy Roman Empire. Long, that lasted. It's, I mean, that lasted until you know, the American Civil War, a little past that. Actually. Uh, not to, not, 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 not to, not to be, uh, we, I welcome fact checks here. Okay, okay. Fact, sure, well, fact checking you here, I believe that the Holy Roman Empire itself um, uh, ceased to exist as a result of the Napoleonic Wars, 1806. And um, it's weird because there's that intermediary period, I think, where um, Germany and Italy didn't get, um, didn't form nation states until, I think, around after the post, for our time measurement, after the Civil War. But there was that intermediary period. Yeah, so it's still, you know, there's still several, uh, you know, several hundred years where the largest institution was very open about the world being, being, uh, being round. 
So it is, it is, uh, it is certainly a weird, I know we kind of went a little off topic there, but it is a, the idea of that, you know, historically people have viewed the world to be flat is completely wrong. Um, it, we've always viewed the world as being round. Um, but you talk about your buddy, your, your buddy, you talk yeah, about the my gentleman. Good, my, my good friend who I met that one, <laughs> but, uh, and, yeah, that was the one flat earther I've ever talked <laughs> spoken with. It, it is weird how of a rejection of science it is. Like they, yes. they, they have a poor understanding of scale. That's where I put it. Like they don't understand how big the world is. Hugh, I know Hugh and I, we've talked about this before, which is that the world is smoother than a cue ball used in pool. Unbelievable. Like, it, it's crazy how smooth and how large the earth is. Um, but you know, it, these are many things that affect how space is perceived. Is that you know you're always going to deal with people who, who could, uh, imagine imagine that you're going to have a space center there and there's a, po a portion of the uh, population that doesn't even think space is real and you have a space center there. <laughs> how delegitimizing are those people going to be by that? If anything, I, uh, this is a great. I think a way to kind of conclude what what we've been talking about here is that that the fact that that's that, that, that this this conspiracy theory of flat earth is actually become it's it's at least on the edge of being a political position <laughs> and, and the fact that it's become popular to me shows that there that it gives evidence that the government should be reinvesting in NASA and the promotion of scientific research and and demonstrate is because that that, that that's gotten too popular it's, it's, I'm, I'm comfortable with with saying that I, I I'm not I'm not sure people believe you can believe what whatever they want to believe but they uh, how do I say this they, they really shouldn't believe that yeah you're they, wrong they, they shouldn't believe that. You, you, you can just be wrong yeah exactly. it's okay <laughs> it's to a, be wrong I was wrong exactly. I was wrong two minutes ago you take the correction now. I'm gonna remember that. <laughs> it's oh, it's oh, and I'll and I'll be. I'm sure I've been wrong on this podcast. I will be wrong again. I'm I'm not I'm not necessarily like making a total mockery of the people who've gone led been misled so far as to think the Earth is flat. But wow. Uh, yeah. Okay. I just want to make one correction as well as you know we're, we're thrown out there. Um, you know, errors is that I mentioned a lot of. U.S. territories, and I left out the U.S. Marshall Islands. And we have one listener who has listened to every single show we've done, according to our metrics, in the U.S. Marshall Islands. So whoever you are, buddy, email us, send a message in Anchor, whatever you want to do, reach out to us. We'd love to hear from you. Yeah, creepy that we can even know that. <laughs> like, you know, this, if anything, this guy, this person is going to either be super into our surveillance of, we don't know where you live. Like, you know what I mean? No, I mean, specifically. Like, you know what I mean? We just have a general idea. But um, yeah, thank, thank you for listening. And thank you to all of our listeners. And uh, we hope you continue to do so. We would love to get an email with some topics or to explore a different angle. Or if you have a, a point you'd like to make to us, please, uh, our, our email and contact information is going to be in the pre-recorded outro. So pay attention to that. Um, topics for future shows and, um, and the like. Uh, anything about Antarctica or tweeting astronauts that you'd like to include, we'd be welcome those as well. Eric? <laughs> yeah, guys, everybody have a, have a good, safe week, and we'll talk to you next Monday. Thank you for joining us this week on Astronomics. As always, I'm Eric. And I was joined with my co-host, Hugh. You can catch us online at astro-nomics.com. That's A-S-T-R-O-N-O-M-I-C-S.com. You can also follow the link in our bio to our Facebook page. 
So give us a like and you'll be able to keep up with all our new episodes. And we often share space-related news and space-related videos. Thank you for listening.